49, we come to the next Hebrew letter, which is Zain. Now, I had announced when we started Psalm 119, there's 22 letters, 22 stanzas that we would at some point take an intermission or a break, and having forgotten that, we probably will drift into another area before we do all 22, but the goal is to get through 22 at some point, and so I uh, haven't forgotten that. So we look now at verse 49, remember the word unto thy servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope. This is my comfort. The Word of God gives comfort. It's our title this morning. The Word of God gives comfort. The word comfort means to ease or to relieve someone of distress or pain or suffering. It means to make it less severe. It means to ease the load and the burden that someone might be experiencing in life. So, when we look at this stanza, we'll divide it into four sections. It can be divided other ways. We'll look where the psalmist finds comfort as it relates to the Word of God. First, he finds comfort in affliction. Second, he finds comfort by himself. Thirdly, he finds comfort in singing. And then fourthly, he finds comfort in the name of God. All by means of the Word of God. First, he says in verse 50, This is my comfort in my affliction, because thy word hath quickened me. Now prior to this time, we've learned the word quickened. This phrase has been used three other times prior to this, but each time he's requesting to be revived, to be strengthened, to be quickened. But now... It's happened. By the Word, He's received the reviving, the strength that He's asked for, and it has come by the Word of God, but it has come to Him through comfort while He was in affliction. Now, how does He find comfort in His affliction as it relates to the Word of God? First, He says, remember the Word unto thy servant. This is my comfort. Why does the psalmist feel that he needs to remind God of his covenant-keeping promises? The word remember means to call to mind. Is God like us? I need constant reminders throughout the week. My wife is a great reminder. She needs to constantly remind me. Does God... Needs someone to remind him. Does he use post-it notes, calendars, computers, smartphones with notifications where you push the button and you talk to that fictitious lady? Say, remind me at 9 a.m. in the morning that I have a meeting. I do that all the time. Rest assured that we would find no comfort in God whatsoever if He was like us and we actually had to remind Him of something that He said to us. Psalm 147 says, Great is the Lord and of great power His understanding is infinite. It has no end. Isaiah 40 verse 28 
There is no searching of his understanding. You could search and search forever and you would never reach the bottom of his understanding and what God knows. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Answer, no one. Or who hath been his counselor? Who has first given to him that it may be returned or recompense back to God? No one. Why? Because of him, through him, and back to him is everything. To whom be glory and dominion forever and ever. Even David says in Psalm 139, Before I speak a word, before it's on my tongue, O Lord, Thou knowest it all together. Before your tongue hits the roof of your mouth, and your lips pucker later today, and your diaphragm and your voice box begins to vibrate and say a word, the Lord has known it forever before you will ever speak it. That's comfort. So why then does he say, remember the word unto thy servant? One, because in affliction, it appears that the Lord has forgotten. You ever felt that way? See, when your child calls you to comfort them when they're in pain, and you bring that comfort immediately, they don't question your love. They don't sit around thinking, my parents have forgotten about me, because you brought the comfort, you brought the help you ease the pain in a physical way immediately. You brought the medicine, you brought the help, you brought the hug, you brought it immediately. So the psalmist is in affliction, and in verse 51 he says, The proud have had me greatly in derision, ridicule, mockery, blasphemy, insults, disdain. He's detested by his enemies. They don't like him. They don't like what he's about. And they're heaping great derision on him. And it seems like heaven is silent. So in the context of affliction, we often think that God has forgotten us, don't we? What we need to remember in affliction, that the how and the when of God's deliverance is on his own terms. He will bring deliverance in a physical way. One way or another, in this life or the next, God is going to bring deliverance. But the how and the timing of that deliverance is within God's wisdom and God's knowledge. So the call to remember is not because God has forgotten, but it appears that God is silent with regard to your pain. He's forgotten you. And so the psalmist finds comfort in saying, remember the word of promise. Your covenant-keeping promises. It appeared in the New Testament in John 11 that Jesus had forgotten about Lazarus. Lazarus was sick, nigh unto death. Mary and Martha knew where help would come from. So they sent a messenger to Jesus who was not there with them in Bethany. And they said through the servant, Lord, the one that you love is sick. The one that you love Not the one that loves you. Certainly Lazarus loved Jesus. But does that give you comfort 
to remind God of your love for Him? When your love is cold, damp, weak, would you go before the throne of grace and say, Lord, I want you to remember just how much I've loved you. Not me. Lord, if you would remember your love for me. Lord, the one that you love is sick. Servant arrived. And then John says, Now, Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. When he therefore heard that he was sick, he waited two days so he could die. Mary and Martha needed comfort. They needed it immediately. They wanted it in the form of the great physician coming because they knew, they knew if Jesus were only there, Lazarus had not died. In fact, that's what they said. Martha did when Jesus finally came. What was the why of Jesus' delay? And the how he would bring comfort because he surely brought it, didn't he? He said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified thereby. You can put that verse on all your affliction. The latter half. Lazarus, who was raised again, he did die again. But when Jesus raised him from the dead, what comfort that brought to Mary and Martha. The kind of comfort that came through the experience of affliction and distress and weeping and sorrow and pain. But they received comfort. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, shall live again. See, our comfort is ultimately in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and who he is. And so Jesus did what was necessary, what he deemed necessary by his wisdom, to bring them a greater comfort by bringing himself glory through sickness. And so, beloved, we must remember, when we ask God to remember, and we can, because the psalmist did, Lord, remember the word unto your servant. We must remember that the how and the when of deliverance, until it comes, is within the wisdom of God, and He's aiming at the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. And until that time of deliverance, where do we find comfort and affliction? The word that He said. It's the promises that will be fulfilled. And so those very words, until they are fulfilled, will bring us great comfort. The second reason, he is reminding God of his word to him, his servant, is because in reminding God of his word, we are reminded of God's word, are we not? If you're going to remind your parents something they said, then you're going to call that to mind and then tell them what they said. So when you remind God of His Word, take His Word to Him that He said He would fulfill, and then in reminding God, who never forgets, because God is remembering what He always remembers, we receive the benefit of comfort because now the promise comes up before our eyes in affliction. See, when you don't have comfort in affliction, what have you forgotten? You've forgotten God's Word of promise. You've forgotten what He said. That's what the writer of Hebrews said. You've forgotten the exhortation. See, they were drawing back. They were, they were not being comforted. They were in great pain. They were in derision by their own countrymen, the, the Jewish people. They had received Christ, and now there was affliction. And so the Hebrew writer says, You have forgotten the exhortation. And then he recalls a promise. What was the problem? 
they thought God had forgotten them. See? So when we remind God of what He's never forgotten, we are being reminded of the exhortation, My children, think not when you're rebuked of the Lord. For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth and scourgeth everyone whom He receives. Doesn't that help? Oh yes, I, I forgot. God's love is coming to me in my training, in my chastening. That's the very thing I forgot. So God, I'm recalling to your mind something that has never left your mind. And in doing so, I'm remembering in my own mind the word unto your servant. God never forgets. That's our hope. That's our comfort. Now, when we bring to mind the very thing that we're asking God to remember, what's the next thing that happens? Upon which thou hast caused me to hope. This is my comfort in affliction. It's in the affliction that he's finding comfort, not just out of the affliction. It's in the affliction that we're more than conquerors, not when the affliction is over. Now, surely when it's over, we're still more than conquerors in Christ Jesus who loved us. But in the middle of it is where we find, through the word, comfort. We find the burden lifted even though the burden is still there. We find the pain eased even though the derision has not left him. And he's in the affliction. This is my comfort, which means that this is my hope. In my affliction, what you need is hope. The Word brings hope. And when it brings hope, it brings you comfort while you're in your affliction. He makes it personal because every affliction is tailored just for you by God. Right? God is not like a neighborhood where every fifth home is just alike. You know, just we call them cookie-cutter homes. God has a custom home, a custom-designed plan of affliction for your life and suffering that is tailored to meet your needs perfectly. Because He knows. He knows what you need. So how is it that God causes us to have hope? And what is this hope? Now here in the Hebrew it just means expect. So every time you hope in something, you expect something. But built into that word, there are some other words that go along with it. If you expect something, it just means you regard it as likely to be so. Or maybe you believe strongly that it's going to be so. All right, built into that definition then is something good. What you regard as likely to be so, you think it's good. We wouldn't call it hope if it wasn't good. If you thought Monday morning at work, your boss is going to call you in the office and say, you're fired, your job is over. You don't say today, I hope I lose my job tomorrow. You may say, I expect to lose it. You know, some things happening at work and you know, we're not making as much money and he's laying off some people, so I expect to lose it. But nobody says, I hope to lose my job. You know why? Because hope expects something good. Third is desire. What you expect that is good, you expect it to deliver on some desire you have. And that object that you hope in may be just as myriad as the number of people on the planet. You know, you, you express your dreams and hopes to somebody and they say, hey, that's good, but that's not my thing. It, it's different. But whatever it is, you expect something that likely will happen, that's going to be good, that then will fulfill your desires. If you didn't think it would, you wouldn't be hoping in it. 
Next then, waiting. Because that good thing that you desire, that you expect to deliver and give you some measure of joy and fulfillment, you're waiting for it because expectation means tomorrow or next week or next month or maybe even next year or sometime in the future. Now here is where human hope is divided from biblical hope because everything I just said is human hope. Everybody has that. Everybody does that. Everybody wants some event, something, some object to deliver on their expectation. Here's the difference. Confidence. Even when you find people humanly hoping in something they're confident about, they better not be too confident because there's no guarantee. With God, it is a guarantee. It is sure. Because it's the word of his promise. Years ago when we would express or women would talk about having a baby, I guess for the times where you would try to speak in a more modest way, they would say, uh, she's expecting. Now all of the words that I just used are fit within that context. She's expecting something good. It's a baby. She expects the delivery on what she wants about that baby to bring fulfillment. Even the Bible says there's joy when the man-child is born. And she has to wait a grueling nine months, sometimes longer, right? The expectation keeps her on the pathway that she's on. Verse 51, the proud have had me greatly in derision, yet I have not declined from your law. Why not? Because of his comfort. Where is his comfort? God had caused him to hope. Without hope, biblical hope, for which we are confident, we are sure about something, it becomes an anchor to our souls. Without it, we will fade like an evening shadow. Why did I use that illustration? Because decline is used that very way elsewhere in the Old Testament. To be like a shadow that fades away. You will fade away with regard to the pathway of God's law and His Word unless... You have comfort in your affliction and that comfort by the Word of God is that He's causing you to have hope. And the only hope you can have to be absolutely confident and sure that it is going to happen is comfort in the Word of God. Where else can you look with certainty? Not even an expecting mother can have any guarantee that what she expects to happen is going to happen. You know people that had such expectations of joy and it didn't happen. It's a very sad thing, right? But not here. This comfort in affliction that God gives us, this reminding God of His Word to His servant is a guarantee because God has caused it to happen. And if God causes it to happen, He means for you to have it. That means if I have no hope at any given time in my life, what's the problem? I'm having a relationship problem with Jesus Christ. And why do you say that? Because He's caused this to happen. And how does He cause it to happen? Through the Word. Now think of three ways. We'll just expand in the Bible for a moment. And we'll come back to affliction. 
how God has caused you to have hope. Now, maybe more than this in the Bible, but just three I can think of. First of all, He's caused you to be born again. Nobody has hope, biblical hope, unless they're born again. First Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to His abundant mercy, His free and sovereign mercy, what did He do? He's begotten you again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The empty tomb has brought about the new birth for those that were foreknown, sanctified unto obedience. 1 Peter 1-2 You've been begotten again. A lively hope is a living hope that means, the word living there actually means a vital force that has an influence on one's soul. What is the vital force that hope creates in the soul that impacts and influences the soul of those that have been begotten again? Well, he answers first, it's to an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. So this biblical hope is beyond the grave. We must be looking to eternity if we're going to have this biblical hope. The promises of God, not only in this life, but what He says is coming to you at the, at the grave when He raises us from the dead. This living hope, this vital force that influences our souls must be a hope in the resurrection. Next, He says, Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is the inheritance sure and you can be confident in, you can be sure that you will make it to the inheritance because Jesus purchased for you redemption, justification, sanctification, reconciliation, and perseverance to the grave. Not independent of your faith, but through it. So you keep trusting you keep looking to His Word. You keep seeking comfort. You keep finding hope in the Bible. And God is working through that to keep you coming. And to keep you from ultimately declining from His Word forever. Alright, that's where hope is looking to. Now, what is this vital force? Verse 6 of 1 Peter 1. Wherein you greatly rejoice. What is the vital force of hope that influences my soul as I look toward the resurrection of the dead, as I look to the promises of God, it produces joy in the soul. It's a joy that Peter says is there even though you're in heaviness through manifold trials or temptations. The, the psalmist is in heaviness. He is in affliction. He is being mocked and ridiculed greatly, yet he finds comfort in his affliction. It's eased to some degree because he has been caused to hope in Jehovah God. What then does Peter tell us is the upshot of this vital force on the soul called joy and who God is, what He promised, and what He's going to do in your life? Verse 22 of 1 Peter 1. Seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Hope that is looking to the empty tomb and beyond to the resurrection that causes you to rejoice then produces love. 
Now, when the psalmist says, I have kept thy law, I have not declined for it, surely he doesn't mean love. Yes, he does. Because the entire law, according to Paul, all of it, the entire law summed up is in one word. Galatians 5.17 Love your neighbor as yourself. You are keeping the law in a righteous way by loving. So you need hope in order to love. You need comfort in your affliction if you're not going to decline from the law of God but keep the law of God not for your salvation but by united to Christ then we're keeping the law for righteousness as we love. Do you have comfort? Do you have hope? Who are you loving in this assembly? Who are you serving? Who are you loving? See, when we have this hope, we continue in the pathway of God's law and we continue in love. Secondly, and what I'm talking about here is how God causes us to have hope. We're born again, secondly, by a broken world. A broken world. Romans chapter 8. You need to remind yourself you're living in a broken world and you are living in a broken relationship right now. Your marriage is a broken relationship. I don't mean by that you're almost ready to call it quits and you don't love each other. But it's broken because you're broken. Romans chapter 8, when Paul is speaking about the adoption and how we have been given the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. He said, the spirit also bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The spirit has been given in part in your soul that you would know that you belong to Jesus. And if you're children, then you're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together with him. A joint heir in the Bible is not like if we all inherited a trillion dollars, we start cutting that up into the number of people here. No, everybody gets a trillion. That's what it means to be a joint heir, because everybody gets God. You don't get part of God. You don't get 50% of God. You get all of God. He's yours by grace. All of Jesus is yours. And He's omniscient, omnipresent. He can spread Himself out fully to every single one of His children, one of His brothers. Then Paul introduces in this great reality of the inheritance that is to come, reality of suffering or affliction. If so, be the inheritance is yours. If you suffer with Him, then you'll get the glory. What does that mean? How do you suffer with Christ? It means when you suffer, you stay with Him. Or, what does the psalmist say? The proud have had me greatly in derision, yet I have not declined from thy law. Which means what? I've not declined from God. When we stay with Him, that's the sure proof that the inheritance is ours. So that's why Paul uses the phrase, if so be. He doesn't mean, well, I'm questioning all your salvation here at Rome. It just means this is the reality of being a joint heir, is that you stay with Christ in suffering, you keep trusting Him even though it's hard, and then you're going to be glorified. Now he wants us to think of what that will mean. So he says this. I'm in Romans chapter 8. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be uh, compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. 
All right? Looking to the future. We've got affliction now. We need comfort in affliction. God's going to give us hope in this affliction through the Word by reminding us what? Even the earnest expectation of the creation is waiting for the manifestation of your glory. See, glory is not just going to be revealed to you. It's going to be revealed in you. You're going to be glorified. And this whole world, the cosmos, is waiting and expecting your glorification. Why? For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who subjected the same vanity of creation in hope. What does that mean? Vanity means futility. It's pointless. It's useless. God has subjected all of creation to a uselessness, a pointlessness. When Adam sinned, the whole cosmos was broken. We live in a broken world. What that means is you cannot put your hope in a pointless, useless, hopeless creation. Creation personified there is trying to tell us, look, Christian, don't hope in me. It's pointless. I'm waiting for your glorification. Why on earth would you put hope in a clay house? It's pointless. And yet, I can tell you right now from the pulpit, I do it all the time. I'd like to be able to say to you, you know, almost 60 years old, I've gotten past that. I haven't. See, God has subjected this world in hope so that you would not hope in creation, but in Him. Because Paul says you're saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. What you've seen, what you have, why do you wait for it? If you have what you're hoping for, you're no longer waiting or enduring it. But if you hope for that which you have not, we with patience wait for it. What's Paul working toward? The suffering, the affliction you now have, when you're hoping in what you don't yet have, you endure the affliction by remembering you live in a world that's broken. It's like living in a broken house. You know, even when you buy a new house, you ever done that? You realize it's broken. It's already broken. I've lived in one new house, and invariably, you just start looking around and say, well, they, they get that wrong. They didn't do that right. Why am I shocked? Broken people in a broken world. And then what happens? Paint fades and peels. Boards start rotting. Kids start knocking things around. And chips come out of the cabinets. And water gets on the floor. And, well, even Dad does that too, you know. It's just broken. And you're broken. And you're shocked when broken people do broken things. Like, what on earth? What was I thinking? See, we need to understand God has subjected you to a broken world. It's like living in a, in a house with broken glass. It's just all decaying and falling apart. When you understand that, you use the clay. You have to have part of this clay, but you understand it's pointless. It's pointless to put my hope in creation. So God has subjected all of creation to brokenness and we are still flawed people and broken so that we would not hope in our marriage. That's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? 
Who here did not put their hope in their marriage? Don't be so bold as to try to make me believe you didn't because I know you did. You thought, when I marry that woman, when I marry that man, unless somehow you had some sober insight, so I've seen enough of that man, I know it's going to be rough, right? No. You thought that person is going to deliver on my expectation and then what happened? The first year was so bumpy. You thought, where, where is the parachute? Where is the exit door? Why? It was what you expected. You didn't go into it realizing this is a broken man. This is a broken woman. This is a broken world. And in this brokenness, we are going to have affliction and trouble. And then you're shocked when he acted the way he did. And you're shocked that she acted the way he did. Why are you so shocked? Because you did not put your hope in God you put your hope in something created and it's broken, it's pointless. Marriage is not pointless when Christ is at the center because when you hope in Him, then the fulfillment of marriage is found in Him and we can receive and give with one another because we understand the brokenness in the world. God has caused you to hope by putting you in a broken relationship called marriage and family, in a broken church called heritage, or wherever your membership is, in a broken world, so that you would not put your hope in a pointless, pointless thing called people creation. And then thirdly, more to the point, affliction. He causes you to hope in affliction. Now look back at the passage we read in Psalm 94 to see this. And of course, there's other places we can see it. So the psalmist is speaking about the wicked. And he's asking God to reward them. And he poses the question in verse 3, How long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? They're speaking hard things. They're triumphing over the psalmist. And so, in verse 12, he says this, Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, trains or instructs, O Lord, and you teach him out of the law. So God here is seen as a teacher, and God is going to instruct, He's going to chasten, He's going to train those pupils in His divine school. So the manual, the, the book, the text for, for the classroom is... The law of God, the Word of God. The classroom itself in verse 13 is a bit surprising. That, they may, that you may give them rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off His people, neither will He forsake His inheritance. Why is that added? Because that's what we think in adversity. And the Lord has cast me off. The Lord has forsaken me. How will you find comfort in affliction? How will God cause you to hope? He's going to use affliction to drive you where? To the law of God. Remember the word to your servant on which you've caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction. What is the psalmist saying? It's the hope he has in the word of God that the affliction has driven him back to. So the adversity here is the classroom whereby God uses to teach us out of the law. Now how does that work? Adversity, or the Word of God in adversity, is like the flux 
in the refining of silver. Flocks is that media that's introduced in the furnace of affliction or the furnace of silver in order to draw out the impurities. So adversity that doesn't drive us to the Word of God is useless. There are countless people in the world that experience affliction in a broken world. So they go into the the furnace like silver, into the fire. In Jeremiah 6.29 concerning the wicked, it says what? They're not plucked away. There's no purification. There's no flux. Because there's no word of God by which they are going to be purified by means of the affliction. So affliction in and of itself has no value. Unless that adversity is used by God to teach us out of the law. And how does that work? Because that adversity drives us back to the Word of God so we find rest. And that's what the Word that is used by the psalmist that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until the, the pit of the wicked be digged. So the very wicked that are causing the adversity, God is doing two things. He's digging the pit for the wicked and what they're doing to you, or we could say from Romans 9, they're digging their own pit, right? What if God willing to show His wrath and make His power known, endured with much long-suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? They're fitting themselves. They're digging their own grave. And so God is working through the wicked. He's using them as an instrument. And they are causing the adversity. And God says through this, I'm training you through the adversity at the hands of the wicked. Or in our psalm, at the the proud that are greatly causing derision to the psalmist become the means of affliction that drives him to the Word of God, that gives him hope, and then he has comfort. Comfort. We need comfort in affliction. You and I both need comfort and we need hope. So how does it come? Through the Word of God as God uses that affliction to drive us back to the Word. Because the psalmist says later in Psalm 119, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Now every time you're afflicted doesn't mean you've gone astray. But in his case, on that verse, he says that was the case. Before I was afflicted, everything was easy. I was prospering in Zion. Everything was going well. Then affliction came, and it drove me back to the Word of God. What's God doing? Bringing you back to hope. When we understand that, then what's the next thing that happens? Verse 52. I remembered thy judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. Horror hath taken hold upon me because of the wicked that forsake thy law. Now, his comfort in affliction serves that he comforts himself. How does that work? And we're going to close here, and we'll have to get back to this later. I'm running out of time. How does this work? He comforts himself. See, he takes action. He feels responsible to comfort not in himself, but by himself in 
the Word of God or in remembering the judgments, the decisions or what God has done in the past, in old. And when he thinks on that, when he searches the revelation of God, when he thinks about Moses and Noah and the saints of God and how God was working through Israel, what happens? He begins to comfort himself. See, what's the threat that you and I have in affliction? I guess I could speak for myself, self-pity. I mean, I can be pretty good at that at times. Self-pity is excessive self-absorption because of one's own troubles. Any of us can easily go there. Woe is me. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows the sorrows I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus, as the song goes. See? And so when we begin to get self-absorbed, then we expect everybody else to be absorbed with my trouble. That's all I talk about. That's all I want you to talk about. Where were you when I needed you? Now make no mistake, the Bible unequivocally says we're to comfort one another. That's true. First Thessalonians 4.18 Comfort one another with these words. That we sorrow not as others which have no hope. So in times of losses, in times of disappointment, what do we remember? The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you tell someone when they've lost a loved one? You comfort them with these words. We're going to, he's going to gather us together to be with the clouds and the Lord. And we'll ever be with the Lord. Comfort yourselves with these words. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Comfort yourselves together and edify one another. In the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to comfort. And 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even the Father of mercies. The God of all hope which comforteth us in any tribulation, that we may comfort those who are also in tribulation. So God brings comfort to you in your tribulation so that you can bring it to others. So we are commanded everywhere in Scripture to be that source of comfort. Not, not the source, but the means of comfort that God Himself is always the source. But you can't wait for the email, the text, or the arrival of that comfort. Because we're sinners, we can let you down. So whether the psalmist was alone, we don't know. But he took action, he took responsibility to think, to search out, to look at the decisions and the execution of God's judgments in the past. And what did he do? He comforted himself. You and I must do the same. We must comfort our Selves, and we do that through the Word of God. So we're we're going to stop here uh, because I want to uh, talk about this a little more. How we comfort ourselves, looking at David an example in First Samuel uh, thirty. If you want to read that in preparation for next Sunday, and First Samuel twenty seven, and see how that you can look at the judgments of God in Scripture and even His own providence in your life. If you're older. If you're not, you can look to the Word, and then in your life, God will show Himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are trusting Him. In fact, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro in all the earth to show Himself strong. He's looking for people that He can show Himself strong on their behalf that are trusting in Him. So He will show Himself strong through the Word as we trust Him. What are we talking about? The Word of God gives comfort in your affliction as we hope in Him. So that we not to decline from His law. 
And then secondly, we began to look at this comfort. He finds comfort not in himself, but by himself. If everybody fails you, if nobody shows up when you need comfort, the Lord Jesus Christ will show up and he'll be the source of your comfort. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. We, we truly have experienced the comfort from your word and the hope that you've caused us to have. Lord, we so easily turn away from you and we experience decline at times. We know that's possible with us. Uh, because we look away from you in times of affliction. So we ask you with the psalmist, we say, Lord, remember the word unto your servant. So that means, Lord, we must be your servants before you would uh, fulfill that promise toward us. Remember it. And Lord, you've caused us to hope, so now bless us to find our expectation from you alone, living in a broken world, in broken relationships, so that we could be instruments in your hands, instruments of grace, And Lord, I pray that affliction would give us comfort as it drives us back to the Word. We could see those promises, see your judgments of old. And then we could comfort ourselves, remembering we're to comfort one another. Remembering we're to be there for each other in love, but to remember ultimately we take action. We are responsible looking to you and to comfort ourselves in remembering your works of old, your mighty works in Israel, in the Bible, in the ways that you've worked in our lives. Lord, give us this comfort today, we ask in the Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.